Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0. I'm Emily Chang, and I'm so excited about my guest this week. I've been trying to get her on the show for a very long time. Susan Wojcicki has been one of the most powerful women at Google from literally the very beginning, and she still is one of the most powerful women in Silicon Valley. She's the second Wojcicki sister we've had on the show. Her younger sister, Anne, is the CEO of 23andMe and joined us last season. And Susan is famous for being Google's first landlord. In 1998, two unknown entrepreneurs, Larry Page and Sergey Brim, set up their first office in her garage in Menlo Park. She went on to become employee number 16, and she's worn a lot of hats at Google, from Google Doodles to Google Images, but most importantly, she built the search engine's critical advertising business. She also played a role in one of the most prescient acquisitions in Google history, in 2006, she urged Larry and Sergey to buy a one-year-old video streaming site called YouTube for $1.65 billion. It is the 10-year anniversary of that acquisition, and YouTube, now under the Google umbrella within the Alphabet family, has over a billion monthly users watching video around the world. And Wojcicki is in charge. Here's my conversation with YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki. Susan, great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Google st started in your garage, essentially, in 1998. How did Larry and Sergey end up in your garage? Yeah, so I wish I could say I had a great eye and I picked them out as <laughs> students, out of all the students at Stanford, and I said, oh, come and rent my garage. I wish I could tell you that, um, but it didn't work that way. What happened was I bought a house, and houses are really expensive in Silicon Valley, and I was a student. And so I wanted someone to help me pay the mortgage. They were looking for space, and um, you know there were just the two of them, and they had one employee, and space was also really expensive. And so the idea that they could just move into my garage quickly and easily at a relatively low cost um, for them um, was really appealing. And so. They just moved in. Your mom was a teacher. Your dad was a physics professor at Stanford. You have two sisters, Anne, who's the founder of 23andMe, Janet, who's an epidemiologist. Tell me about a day in the life in the Wojcicki household. So first of all, we grew up on the Stanford campus. And so it meant that all of the neighbors that we had were professors around us, which I think definitely influenced us because everybody was studying to do something and had a passion. And so I'm the oldest. And I would say I'm like maybe the more practical one <laughs> as the oldest one. And uh, you know, growing up, I was also really creative. I always like loved making things, and um, I think that's actually what led me to computers in the end. How did you parlay your history and literature degree at Harvard, by the way, <laughs> into becoming the CEO of a giant technology company? So I studied history and literature at Harvard. I had no idea that I was going to go into technology at all. Like, if you had told me that when I was a student, I would have, I would have thought you were completely crazy. I used to come home, and I used to do these temp jobs when I would come home from college. So I'd have like a week free, and I would just call a temp service and say, just place me anywhere. And one time, I was like at a lawyer. Another time, I actually got placed at the garbage company to answer the phone. And the third time, I got placed at a startup. And I realized, like, wow, they can use 
technology and they have these big ambitions. And I thought, that's really cool. I want to be part of it. So when I went back and I was a senior, I decided to take a computer science class at Harvard, which was crazy because there was no other humanity senior taking a computer science class. But it was, it was really good. I got a good basis. Um, and then when I came, moved back home, um, I came to Silicon Valley and I was able to get a job. And I've been there ever since. You were Google's 16th employee. First marketing manager, you worked on Google Doodles, Google Images, Google Books, you built the ad business. How many hats have you worn in 18 years? You know, I think when you join a startup, you just sort of have to be willing to do whatever the startup needs you to do. But part of it also was that I, because maybe I didn't have as fixed a role at first, I was always looking for the opportunity. And so it was like, oh, look, there's an opportunity. Like nobody else is working. For example, when I worked on image search, I was like, no one else is working on image search. Like there are all these other people, they're working on the text search. But, you know, images would be really cool. And, um, you know, today that's a really popular search. So. I think doing lots of things and having the freedom to move around the company actually enabled me to see a lot of opportunities and then, um, and then grow them. It's been 10 years since Google bought YouTube and you wrote the original justification plan, as I understand it, that convinced Larry and Sergey to buy the company. What did you see back then? I did a spreadsheet. That was one of my contributions. But I also believed in YouTube. There was this one video that we had and that video convinced me. and and showed me that people all over the world can create content and be entertaining. And so the video was of these two students um, in their dorm room and their roommates in the background doing his homework and they're singing to the Backstreet Boys and they are incredibly funny. I still laugh when I watch it. And that was our first hit. And I realized that people all over the world can be creative and funny and that other people want to watch it. And I thought, wow, if it continues like this and it continues to grow, this is gonna be a big phenomena. I always hear this about YouTube. It's become so much, but it could be so much more. Well, I think the growth has been amazing. Um, the fact that we have a billion people who use YouTube every month is, um, I mean, that's a big number. And Variety did this study um, where they went and they asked teens, um, who are your stars? And in 2015, they said that eight of the top 10 of their stars were YouTubers. It's been almost three years now since you became CEO. What's the personal stamp that you want to put on the company? Well, it's been really fun. I love being at YouTube. I love like hearing and meeting the creators. I love the creative aspect of it. I love the way entertainment is, is um, um, being opened up to anyone. Um, and I also really care deeply about the value that we have, the freedom of expression, um, and the fact that people all over the world can use it to tell their story. When I think about like, what do we want to do with YouTube and where do we want to grow it, video has never been easier to create, it's never been easier to watch. Um, and so we think about ourselves as a platform for the next generation of media companies to be able to create content and to distribute it to the world. And we also want to work with traditional media companies so that that content can be redistributed to all the millennials that are on the platform. Now, some analysts estimate the value of YouTube is like $70 billion, that it could easily be a standalone company. Why isn't it a standalone company, even within the Alphabet family? You know, it's an important part of Google. Um, 
And we benefit from a lot of things being part of Google. So first of all, we run on Google infrastructure. And then we also benefit from Google's ad sales team that sells our inventory. Um, but within YouTube, we are a company within Google. And so um, we have all parts that a company has, um, sales, marketing, um, engineering. And so we have some of the benefits of being within Google, um, but then um, are able to be a standalone brand within the company. There are reports that YouTube makes billions of dollars, and still you recently said that YouTube is still in investment mode. And I'm curious, how would you describe your goals, Larry Page's goals, CFO Ruth Porat's goals around profit, short and long term? Really what you want to focus on is growing the business when you're in a big growth area. Um, and so you have to balance doing that and then doing that in a responsible way. TV, which is one of the biggest markets from any metric, from a subscription number, from a TV ad number, from a watch time, like this is one of the biggest markets we have. And the millennials, we are not seeing them watching as much TV. Mm -hmm. And so we see this as an opportunity to invest and continue to grow the product and continue to grow YouTube to be a great experience. So we need to do that in a responsible way, um, but we're definitely in investment mode. According to a recent Piper Jaffray survey, for the first time, teens are watching more YouTube than cable. 26% saying they watch YouTube every day compared to 25% for cable, compared to 37% for Netflix. What do the demographics actually look like? Because some people say YouTube focuses too much on younger users. Well, to get a billion users to come to your site every month, you need people from all demographics. Um, and so if you look at any demo, um, we have a very significant number of users. But um, I do think if you look at the, the millennial audience, you do see their behavior really shifting um, from traditional TV to online. And so mobile, I think, is really driving a lot more usage. And also the on-demand. So this is, a, this is a generation that has grown up expecting of course they should be able to see whatever show they want whenever they want. Snapchat is rising, Facebook and Twitter are doubling down on live video, Amazon and Netflix are spending a lot of money on original content, Apple is getting into original content. YouTube does a little bit of all of these things. Do you see more sort of focus or priority down the line in one particular area? We're focused in being a platform, we're an ad-supported platform, so we have content that is available to anyone and everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you want to have the broadest reach, if you have content and you want to get it out there to everybody, um, YouTube is a great way to do that. But uh, we also have a subscription service. Our largest creator has over 45 million followers and subscribers on our platform. Um, and so if you look at those creators, they a lot of times will be doing one thing on YouTube, but they'll be thinking about like, well, maybe I should do a movie or um, a series. And so um, we've been doing original content as part of our subscription service for our creators to be able to take it to the next level. What is the balance then that you intend to strike between subscription revenue and ad revenue? I think if you look forward in the business, like let's say five years from now, you're gonna look at it and say both of them were really, really important to YouTube. And they actually work together. So um, the fact that we have a free business, free with ad supported, actually enables an opportunity for users to come and to say, oh no, I actually wanna have the subscription business. So it's an upsell mechanism for us. And so I think these two actually work really well together. You were Google's first employee to go on maternity leave, and you joined Google when you were four months pregnant. Tell me about you know telling Larry and Sergey, "Hey, I'm four months pregnant." All of the other employees were students, who I don't think they even had a girlfriend, let alone um, 
you know, thinking about having a baby. So I was just in a completely different world um, from them. But, you know, I told them up front that I was pregnant and they, um, you know, it took them a minute to kind of, to register that. But, you know, then they actually thought about it and they were like, you know what, um, we're gonna build you a daycare. And I said, well, you know, you only have 16 employees, you're just getting started, you don't have like any revenue models. Um, like I said, it's okay, um, I'm glad you're really supportive and yes, I'm gonna join Google. In the end, we were able to open up a daycare that always were super supportive, always very supportive of families. And so we continue to operate that daycare today. Um, it's just been really hard to scale with all of the employee growth, but we do continue to operate that daycare. You have five children. Yes. You're a hardworking mom. How do you feel about getting the mom question? I do think it is a question that lots of women have, and so I have also wanted to be open and share my point of view and share my experiences because I think women want to hear about it, and, and men want to hear about it too. Having kids and working, it's hard for, for, um, for both sides. So how so. do you do it? How do you run YouTube with five kids? The main thing for me has been um, to focus and prioritize. And so I'm really, really good about um, saying this is my work time. And when I'm in the office, I am really, really focused on what I'm doing and I'm prioritizing. And I've always kind of thought about, well, how do I get from point A to point B as quickly as possible? Because I don't have forever. Like, I can't stay there until midnight. I can't work weekends. And so in some ways, it actually caused me to see some of the shortcuts, some of the new opportunities, because I was thinking about like, well, how do I grow this faster? How do I grow really quickly? Like, you know, like, let's just like, let's just forget about all those other things that are growing slowly. They're not going anywhere. I'm like, I don't have time for that. I gotta focus on the big ideas and we gotta get them done now. And so that actually is really good in tech, right? Because tech is like about growing big ideas quickly. Um, and so I use my work time to focus on that. And I, um, and then when I get home, I really try to focus on my family and my kids. Um, my husband's very helpful. Um, you know, and realistically, to be fair, like as I've, as I've you know, risen in my career, I've been able to have more help at home. I think the hard part, and when I really struggled, was when I had my first baby, you know, I didn't know what I was doing at work. You don't know what you're doing at home, and you don't really have any support at either home or work. That's, I think, when it's the hardest. What do you think of the lean-in philosophy? There's a set of women who read it and say, you know what, this is really, really helpful for me. And then I think there are other women who have said, you know what, I've made a really conscientious choice not to lean in, that I wanna be able to spend more time with my family, I wanna be able to spend more time not working. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes those women, you know, find it offensive or disagree with it, but you know, look, I, I think of it as a business book for women. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, not everyone wants to be in business. Not everybody wants to lean in. And I think that's fine. And I think Cheryl was really open about that in her book. This book isn't for everyone, but to the extent that you do want to or that you have to. There are many women that have to be working. You know, I think she has lots of great points about, like, you know, how to ask for a salary. Um, you know, go advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it really applies to a lot of women who want to work or have to work. What about what, in the places where there are still barriers, like you can't lean in if the door is nailed shut? Well, I think there are lots of ways the world could change to make things 
easier for women. But the reality is like those things get changed by having more women in the workforce, mm -hmm. right? So like summer camps. So when I was growing up, I don't remember there being summer camps. Like, you know, we just stayed home all day and did nothing. But now there are like so many choices like karate camp, computer camp, art camp, design camp. Um, and so I think that's a way that the market has responded to, oh, there are all these parents who want their kids to be able to do activities during the summer, um, here's an opportunity for you. How big a problem do you think it is that women are so underrepresented in technology? I think it's a big issue for the world because it means that we're missing voices, we're missing innovation from women who could be creating all these great products that, um, and ideas and services. I think tech is missing out and it's a problem for women. It's a problem for women because you look at it and say, you know, women have made a lot of strides um, in the workforce and here is this huge economic driver of change and women are not participating in it. If tech is what's driving the new jobs, if it's what's driving change, if it's what's driving influence and women are not part of it, then they're not part of that change, and that's a problem. Google, for it being one of the best companies to work at in the world, has the same dismal numbers as everybody else. Why is that? If you look at the people graduating from college, students graduating from college, you still see that the overall um, number of women having computer science degrees is in the, you know, at the most 20%. So you think it's a pipeline problem? Today there's a pipeline-ish um, problem, but then you say, well, why is there a pipeline problem, okay? Um, and then once you have a pipeline problem, then it causes other issues, right? So if you are asking that 20% to go into an environment where 80% of their peers are male, like already you may be at a disadvantage just when you graduate um, because you're going into a more male environment. So, um, you know, I think the question is really, well, why do you have the pipeline issue in the beginning? I think that, you know, at some level, it's a problem that women think that um, computer science is boring, not interesting to them, or that they wouldn't be good at it. Mm -hmm. And what happened to me was I saw that computers could be creative, and I love to create, and I was able to overcome some of the challenges and maybe some of the stereotypes about it being very geeky and numbers driven and boring um, and see if for the creative industry that it really is. And I wish more women would see that. How much will YouTube spend on original programming this year, next year? I will say it's the first year that we've been in it. And so we've been learning um, about creating shows. Um, we've actually been really pleased in the shows that we've created and the feedback that we've gotten from our users. What's the most successful show? PewDiePie is our creator who has the largest number of subscribers. He has over 45 million subscribers. And he is a gamer. He plays games. He does this really funny commentary. He did a real life game where he was put in real life situations that were like a game. Twitter, Amazon, Facebook are pursuing live streaming rights to sports. Do you do concerts already? Is sport something you'd consider? Well, right now we do a lot of highlights for sports. Mm -hmm. We did that during the whole um, football season. Um, they did really well on YouTube. You know, the full game, right? Those are very competitive. There are lots of people who are bidding for them. They're really expensive. And you know, traditional media also are competing for them. So, you know, I think a lot will change over the next five years. But at this point right now, we're really just focused on those highlights so that users can see those key moments that happen during the game. How do you think things will change over the next five years? 
as like the online players have stronger ad models, they have stronger subscription, um, you know, they'll be able to be more competitive to be able to compete for some of those um, sports rights. The headlines talk about YouTube being at war with the music industry. You've got everyone from Taylor Swift to Paul McCartney saying they don't like the way you do business. Do you see a future where there's a middle ground, where everyone is happy? You know, first of all, working with the music industry, I've learned that there are many constituents in the music industry, um, and they don't all agree with each other, right? So there'll be the labels and the artists and the publishers. Um, and so I'm, I remain really hopeful that as the um, online models of both subscription and advertising become more developed, that over time um, we are able to come to a place where everyone agrees on, on that future vision. And I actually think we're getting there because we're starting to see the, um, you know, the online subscription and streaming numbers really pick up. We're starting to see more revenue from advertising. We've paid out $3 billion to the music industry since inception. We have good growth numbers. So you know, overall, I think um, as more time goes by, it'll become more clear on what these monetization models are and, and we'll be more aligned. How are you thinking about VR? Because some people think that Google needs to buy or produce its own VR. There are many players that are developing content right now that's VR. Um, but I think everyone's still trying to figure out like what's the best way. Because this is a new medium. We have a very large collection of 360 degree video. Um, so we're leaning in. We see this as a great way to have an experience where you can really feel immersed and um, really experience that story. Harassment is a problem for a number of different technology companies. And if you look at the comments on YouTube, they're not kind. What are you doing to get that under control? Yeah, so I think that um, is a really important area and something that we're putting a lot of energy into. We have community guidelines. Anything that promotes violence, anything that promotes hate, that would violate the community guidelines. And so if there's something on our platform that violates those community guidelines or that a user feels uncomfortable with, they can flag it. It goes to a queue. It's reviewed by a YouTube employee who then will see does it meet or not meet the community guidelines. Um, and then if it doesn't, we will take it down. But we're, you know, we're trying to do more. And so one of the things that we just did out there that I think is really impactful is we created this program called Creators for Change. There are creators out there who are actually taking some of these tough topics and they're doing a great job to encourage understanding, to encourage empathy. We gave them additional funding. We have a fund of a million dollars that we gave to them. We're promoting them on social media. So the idea is really how do we get creators who are so influential in themselves um, to help promote these positive messages of understanding and empathy across YouTube. Do you think the internet will become a friendlier place? I think. Like, all technology has both good and bad sides to it, um, just like you know the real world does, right? Right? They're friendly people and they're difficult people. I've seen like all the good that has come out of it, and I've seen the way that people are able to connect with people like them on the platform that otherwise they just wouldn't have been able to connect with. The goal is like as our technology gets better as we are better able to identify what are the right ways to enforce, that we can continue to do an even better job and have promote even more the good stuff on the internet. Where do you think YouTube will be in the next 10 years? Do you see it being more like Netflix? I mean, our goal at YouTube is to be the platform for the next generation of media companies. And um, you know, if you look at YouTube, it sort of started out with cat videos and people uploading like cool things they saw in their backyard. Um, and then we had creators, and they started actually doing it for a living. And now we have 
um, this new generation of creators that are building media companies on YouTube. And so I think if you fast forward 10 years, um, you're going to see that there's going to be a new generation of these of these media companies that have really strong followings. Um, they're able to create you know, amazing content. Um, it's going to be global. Um, they're going to be able to interact with their fans in all kinds of amazing ways. And I'm really looking forward to being part of that. All right. Susan Wojcicki, CEO of YouTube, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. If you missed them, you can check out the previous episodes of Bloomberg Studio 1.0 on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg.com. We've talked to Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft, now owner of the L.A. Clippers. We've talked to Instagram CEO Kevin Sistrom, venture capitalist Vinod Kosla of Kosla Ventures, and much more. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced by Aaron Black, Candy Cheng, and Emily Haas-Gotzel. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.